WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Foodborne pathogens are responsible for 3,000 deaths every year. There are so many different ways we can go upon analyzing this. We've had episodes in the past talking about listeria and salmonella, but never particularly about how to detect them. To tell us more about ways to detect foodborne pathogens, we're here talking to Saad Sharif and Emma Dester. May you please introduce yourselves for us? Sure. I am a fourth-year graduate student in the Department of Biosystems and Agriculture Engineering. My research interests are in the synthesis of nanomaterials in anaconda feeding and primarily in detecting pathogens from food matrices. I'm Emma. I'm currently a dual-enrolled undergraduate and master's student. I'm also in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department, and I've been doing research there since my freshman year. My main research interest for my master's is extracting and detecting bacteria from food matrices. Thanks for joining us this morning. With regards to extracting the bacteria, how does one exactly do that? Our lab we work in is the nanobiosensors lab. So we work with something called nanomaterials. So there's a couple we focus on, and for our experiments, we use gold nanoparticles and magnetic nanoparticles. Basically, what we do with nanoparticles is they have very different properties than these materials would on the normal macro scale, right? So gold nanoparticles, for example, actually change color depending on how big they are when they're on the nanoscale. And they're not gold like you'd expect. They're actually red to blue, depending on how big they are. So that's what our lab uses for our detection methods. For extracting bacteria, what we do is magnetic nanoparticles can actually bind to bacterial cells. And since they're magnetic, we can use these properties to actually bind to bacterial cells and then pull them out of a food matrix. That's the basis of how we get the bacteria out. So we've been facing a lot of foodborne outbreaks in the past, and the traditional methods to determine if a particular foodborne outbreak is related to a specific bacteria usually takes a lot of time. And in our lab, we are working on technologies that can reduce the amount of time that's needed to confirm the presence of these food pathogens. I believe it's an important thing in detection to be able to rapidly diagnose and reduce the time so that we can make sure that people are treated more quickly. You had mentioned magnetic nanoparticles can bind to bacterial cells. Do they just naturally bind to each other, or do you need to do something to the bacterial cells in order for them to bind to the magnetic nanoparticles? We don't actually have to do anything to the bacteria themselves to make them bind. What we do have is there's specific ways you coat the magnetic nanoparticles that allow them to actually bind. It's usually based on the charges of the magnetic nanoparticle in the bacterial cell membrane. So these magnetic nanoparticles sound like they're around the same size as the bacteria, or maybe smaller than they are. If they're going into the cellular matrix of the bacteria, can you give us a better idea of how big the magnetic nanoparticles are relative to the bacteria itself? Well, the magnetic nanoparticles are actually way smaller. A bacteria typically measure between 2 micrometers to 5 micrometers, and and these MNPs, as we usually call them, are about 2 to 30 nanometers. So there's a lot of difference between the two. 
under a microscope, which you need a very intense microscope to actually see nanoparticles since they're so small. A lot of the magnetic nanoparticles, or MNPs for short, actually be attached around the outside surface of a single cell. So they're like little tiny dots surrounding the cell. Nanoparticles tend to cluster because of the magnetic nature. So it makes it possible for us to look at these clusters inside a regular microscope. But if we were to look at a single magnetic nanoparticle, we would require a transmission electron microscope. Now, Emma had said that there were gold nanoparticles that could change color from blue and red based off of their size. I'm pretty sure our audience is also wondering, how expensive is it to make these magnetic and gold nanoparticles? Both of these methods are actually very cost-effective. Our estimates for some of our tests that just use magnetic nanoparticles, for example, can be as little as 10 cents per test. So the quantity you have to use is very small, so it's actually an incredibly cost-effective method. Getting to Emma's point on the cost for the test, the gold nanoparticles and magnetic nanoparticles we use in our lab aren't really purchased from a commercial establishment, but we rather make them inside our lab, which makes this even more cost-effective. Well, these are incredibly tiny little particles that you are working with, but it sounds like your laboratory has a really good handle on how to manage with them. Once you've extracted these bacteria that are coated with magnetic nanoparticles, what exactly happens next? Are the magnetic nanoparticles somehow removed? And then how do you know when the bacteria is actually within your sample? Starting with our procedure, once we finish pulling out this bacteria using the magnetic nanoparticles, we then incubate the sample, which means we put it in a tube with its broth, which is basically food for the bacteria, and we let that grow for four hours. And this is really great because a lot of the conventional procedures require a lot more incubation time than that, like overnight incubation. But within four hours, since we've already concentrated the bacteria using the magnetic nanoparticles, we have a high enough concentration that we can then extract the DNA. And when we extract the DNA, we also eliminate the magnetic nanoparticles by letting them settle to the bottom of the tube. So then we're left, once we extract the DNA, with a concentrated DNA sample that we can use for detection. It's intriguing to me that you're using DNA for the extraction and detection. Are you only allowed to use DNA or can you use other genetic material like RNA? The primary reason we use DNA is because DNA is stable, unlike RNA, and very easily degrade even when stored at temperatures as low as minus 80, whereas DNA remains stable at room temperature for probably more than 30 days. And robustness is the main reason for using DNA. And the other reason also is the quantity. There's a lot of DNA in a bacterial cell than there is RNA, which makes things easier for us. It makes sense that the RNA molecules are unstable comparatively to the DNA counterparts. Speaking of DNA, once you've extracted that from your bacterial samples, what exactly do you do afterwards with it, and how do you know it's there? So that's when the other type of nanoparticle we were discussing, gold nanoparticles, comes in. So to reiterate, we use the magnetic nanoparticles for extraction, and then the gold nanoparticles are what we use for detection. So once we have this concentrated DNA sample, that's when the gold nanoparticles come in. We've developed a procedure that uses gold nanoparticles bound to a DNA probe to detect the DNA present. 
So a probe is a sequence of DNA that is complementary to the DNA in our bacteria that we're trying to detect. So we take this gold nanoparticle bound to a probe and we add it to the DNA sample. We use something called a thermocycler to bring up the DNA to really high temperatures. And at this high temperature, the double-stranded DNA will split. So once it's split, the probe can come in and attach to the single strand of DNA that's left. So now, if there's DNA present in the sample that we are trying to detect the specific bacteria, when it cools back down to room temperature, we have the DNA with a probe attached with a gold nanoparticle attached. If there's no target DNA in the sample, then the gold nanoparticles won't attach. So now we have a sample has the correct DNA with this gold nanoparticle and probe attached. So gold nanoparticles are extremely sensitive to different pH conditions. So they tend to aggregate and then degrade when subjected to either an acid or to a base. So in our experiments, we subject gold nanoparticles to an acid called hydrochloric acid, and the presence of DNA actually prevents the gold nanoparticles from degrading because it actually covers the gold nanoparticles and does not allow the acid to reach the gold nanoparticles, and therefore the color does not change. Now, gold nanoparticles, when they are really small, about 30 nanometers, they appear to be red in color. But as they keep aggregating, they tend to change color and then eventually turn black, which could be a good indicator of the presence or absence of DNA for our purpose. I'm imagining all of these little nanoparticles trying to aggregate or clump together while they're trying to be protected by the DNA. It surprises me actually that the DNA is trying to protect the gold nanoparticles because I'm surprised that the DNA is not affected by the acid. Does the acid degrade the DNA whenever it's in contact with it? That is correct. The acid does degrade DNA when it comes in contact with it, but we use a very diluted amount of that acid, not strong enough to degrade the DNA, but it is strong enough to degrade the gold nanoparticles. And that's how the acid we use, which is 0.1 molar, does not really affect the DNA, but it leads to a significant effect on the gold nanoparticles. It was mentioned earlier that DNA is broken apart by using a thermal cycler to change and increase the temperature of the solution. And then afterwards, you use a probe to determine whether or not there is DNA in your solution. What exactly is this probe and how does it work? So the probe we use is a complementary DNA sequence. So it's something we specifically find using research that is a sequence of DNA that is specific to that bacteria. So the probe will only attach if the correct DNA is present. When Saad told us that you're using colors to determine if it was a positive or negative test, it reminds me of a pregnancy test, how you're able to see an indicator that would tell us if there was a positive or negative result. In your example, do you have a reference sheet so that when people are using it, they can see the color against their sheet to understand if it's positive or negative? The procedure we're using is still in testing, so we haven't created an exact standard yet. But any test we do has a control, so that's a sample with no DNA present at all. So you can use that to compare the color between the control and the sample with the present DNA. When there's the DNA present, like Saad said, the particles won't aggregate, so it looks very red in color. When there is no DNA present, the gold nanoparticles do aggregate, and it looks almost blue or black. So this is a pretty easy test that you can visually see. We also use machines in our lab to measure the actual absorbance peaks. 
So this basically gives a numerical value to the color you see. So it makes it easier to compare colors that might seem very similar to the naked eye, but actually look at them on a quantifiable scale. I can understand how it's still a long ways away to actually get this process standardized and used in other places. However, once the hurdles of standardization have been passed, what is your target audience? And when it comes to using this particular method, how is it going to be used? Well, the procedures that we've developed in this lab, they are inexpensive. They are very simple, so they can be implemented by anyone without a scientific skill set. And they are also applicable in a low resource setting. Well, the procedures we've developed are extremely simple, are cost effective and very applicable to a low resource setting. We do not use a lot of complicated equipment and these procedures could be implemented by anyone without a scientific background. Our aim is to make sure these procedures could be applied to regions where there is not a lot of facilities for people to confirm the presence of the target pathogen. Apart from that, as I've said before, we also want to reduce the amount of time that it takes to confirm the presence of the pathogen, making it easy to prevent a foodborne outbreak. This test really has a lot of potential, not just in the United States, but across the world, especially in those resource-poor areas where they don't have access to advanced equipment. Our lab does a lot of international collaborations with other laboratories, and we're really excited to see how this test pans out in these other laboratories as well. It's really important that you're targeting places outside of the United States who really do need these tests, but don't have the money to afford what is currently out on the market. I'm very happy that you all have international collaborations to understand what's happening in these different places. Are you only focused on foodborne pathogens, or are you also doing other things with these international collaborators? For this project specifically, we are focusing on foodborne pathogens, but that's not the only research our lab is doing, especially with our international collaborators. Some other examples would include our work detecting the dengue virus and also detecting tuberculosis. Our tuberculosis method is actually very exciting. It costs only about 10 cents per test, and the early results are very promising for its sensitivity. Adding to Emma's point on the type of projects we work on, we also work on developing anti-counterfeiting technologies to prevent trafficking of drugs, where we are using a DNA-based barcode, which this biosensor could be applied for confirming the presence of DNA and the presence of an authentic product. It's great that this method is going to have several interdisciplinary applications when it comes to the solutions of different problems that need to be solved around the world. It was said earlier how it can be used to identify whether or not a person has been given counterfeit drugs, but how exactly does that work? Well, the traditional methods to prevent counterfeiting include the barcodes and QR codes that we are used to, but these could be replicated very easily. If these barcodes or QR codes could be coated with a sequence of DNA rather, this sequence would be very difficult to replicate. Now, the biosensor we developed to detect the bacteria could also be applied to detect the DNA that is sprayed onto products. This could confirm the authenticity of the product and prevent counterfeiting. Just to reiterate what you all are saying, I think it's really important how versatile this method is. I really like that you were able to use it to detect counterfeit drugs, but also for tuberculosis, for dengue, and so much more. Now that we've heard about your project, we would like to hear about you, Saad and Emma. What motivated you to join this lab, and what do you want to do after you're done graduating? So I've been working with synthesis of nanomaterials for a while now. 
This project was a great opportunity for me to apply my skills on nanomaterial synthesis towards bettering the health of people across the world. Post-graduation, I do want to continue working on similar technologies, which could be applicable to places with low resource setting and especially to regions where people require these inexpensive applications. I would like to continue working on biosensors, but rather focus on disease detection. So I've always had an interest in health and biology. And like I mentioned at the beginning, I've actually been working in this lab for four years since I started college. I actually met Dr. Alasilha, the head of our lab, before I even started college, and I was just really inspired by her focus on global health and these cost-effective technologies. I'd never even heard of nanobiosensors or nanomaterials before, but I was just immediately interested in it. So over my four years here, I've worked on several projects, and it's been incredibly exciting, and I'm very excited to continue with my master's next year. I'm actually very interested in the medical side of things, so I plan to attend medical school after my master's next year. I'm really excited to take all of these skills I've learned in engineering and research of problem solving and understanding things on a technical level, but then also applying them to human beings and patients. Well, based on the experiences you shared with us on the work that you're doing within the nanobiosensors lab, as well as the aspirations that you have for the future, it's clear that you're going to impact and save a lot of lives in the future. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and to talk to us about your research. And also, good luck with the rest of your programs. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the SciFiles, and remember, the truth is in the science.